Good morning. Well, it's the last Sunday in Advent. It's the last Sunday before we get to Christmas Day. The last Sunday of waiting, of watching, of picking up this theme that we've been picking up over the last few weeks, of, of feeling the darkness of things around us and waiting for the light. So if you've been with us the last three, we were thinking about waiting for a son with Abraham, longing for and looking forward to someone who would take on the family line, who would take God's blessing to future generations. Then we were waiting for freedom with Joseph, down in the pit, time and time again, waiting for God to bring him out and bring him to freedom and happiness. And then week three, waiting for home, looking forward to living in a place that you could call your own with the people of Israel. That was the story, the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, wandering through the wilderness in God's presence, with his presence, waiting to go home and be with him forever. So we've been waiting for a son, for freedom, for home, and now we're going to wait for a king. We're going to read in a minute. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 2, if you want to look it up in a, a Bible that you might have in front of you, 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we're going to read the song of a woman who'd been waiting for a long time for a son. And her song takes an unexpected turn at the end and looks forward to a king who's going to come, a king who's going to put everything right, a king who's going to come and reverse everything. But before we get to that, let me ask you, what do you think about kings? Are you somebody who's a big fan of kings, King Charles III or kings in general? Are you a royalist? Are you somebody who quite likes the idea of somebody reigning on the throne, representing us to the world, bringing peace and righteousness and justice and leading the nation? Or maybe you're not, maybe you're more of a Republican. Maybe you're somebody who doesn't really enjoy or actively pretty against those kind of family lines of people who inherit privilege and inherit rulership and inherit power. Really, it should be the people, perhaps, who get together and decide who rules them. Well, we have a bit of a strange mix of that in the United Kingdom. Don't we? A king on the throne and yet also a parliament that we vote for, sort of. I wonder what you think about kings. Well, often when we look back to history, things get a little bit rosier. Maybe if you're Welsh and into your Welsh history, you're not a fan of the kings as they are at the moment. People imposing kings and princes uh, in our country who we didn't really consent to or agree to. They didn't come from us. But maybe you'd look back in history to somebody like Owain Glyndwr and think, yeah, there's a prince I could get behind. There's a, a king that we long to return. Somebody who gives us surprising lakes up at Llyndlchowain. The I don't know if you know the legend of that story, but somebody who does surprisingly good things in the land, who would set their place in Machantleth, right in the middle of the heartland of the country, of, of old, having the seat of their kingdom, up there in a place where we could go and, and visit and meet the king and know that somebody from among our brothers is our ruler, is the one who'd bring peace, is the one who'd give us standing, is the one who'd bring justice and honour back to our nation. Maybe even if you're not a fan of the kings at the moment, you are a fan of Owen Glyndor, I don't know. But if you're not so sure about him, I'm pretty sure we can all get behind Mufasa and the Lion King. If you know that story, if you've watched that film or been to that amazing musical, the Lion King is somebody that pretty much everybody is a fan of. A lion in his kind of regal, powerful, looking after everyone kind of a role. That's a king that we can get behind, isn't it? Because when the bad king turns up, when somebody who doesn't have a right to the throne, like Scar, turns up, you can see what he does to the country. Everything goes dark. Everything gets dry. 
everything's miserable and he lifts up scoundrels like um, the hyena kind of um, mafia that he has around him. And you go and visit Scar's country, if you know the film, and it's miserable. It's full of bones and death and darkness and nobody good, nobody vulnerable, no children or um, anybody who needs help would ever go and visit Scar's country. You know that's the kind of place you get picked on. Under a bad king, things go rotten, but under Mufasa or under Simba, when eventually he realises who he is and comes to be the king that he's meant to be, everything, everything's right with the world again. You see, there's something about us, I think, that even if you're the strongest Republican, there's something about that idea of a king who comes to the throne and puts everything right, who represents us as only a, a righteous, good king could. There's something about that that kind of resonates with our hearts. Maybe not. Maybe you want to come back and uh, come and debate me about that. But I reckon when you look at the Lion King anyway and think about that, it shows us that really at heart, we all desire a king, a good king who would stand for us, who we could go and visit, who we could look in the eye, bring to him all of our problems, all of our struggles, all of the injustices, all of the unfairness of the world, and know that he would do something about it. Straight away, there and then, he'd pass a judgment. He'd pass a law. He'd make it so that the lowest of the low would be lifted up and the highest of the high who abused their high position would be pulled down at least a peg or two. We long for a good king at heart, I think. Well, that's what we're thinking about today. Hannah, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, if you want to go there in the Bible, Hannah was a person who longed for a king. She'd been the victim of injustice. She was a woman who couldn't have babies and people picked on her for that. She was miserable about it. It was not an easy thing to be a woman in those days who didn't have any children. So she came to the Lord and prayed and prayed and prayed and poured her heart out to him. And one day he gave her a child. His name was Samuel. He's this miracle baby who arrives on the scene years after years and years of trying for a baby. And another month has come and it hasn't happened. And another and another and another. And she's been waiting and praying. And eventually Samuel arrives. And this is the song that she sings in praise to God, who's listened to her prayer. 1 Samuel chapter 2 from verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted up. That's all about strength. He's made me strong. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you. There's no rock like our God. Don't keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry hunger no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who has many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And listen to this last line. 
He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. It's a really interesting last line. It's a really interesting song. But that last line in particular, because there wasn't a king in Israel at this time. Hannah's speaking before the age of the kings in Israel, before Saul eventually rises up, this tall, dark, handsome king who starts off so well and then eventually turns away from God and it all goes wrong. Long before David, the king they were really waiting for, the king after God's own heart, Hannah prays this prayer and sees, almost prophetically into the future, sees a king that this is what God is going to do. He's the God who's going to reverse everything. Did you hear that? Through her song, through her psalm. It's all about how those who are high get pulled down and those who are low get lifted up. Those who are hungry get fed and those who are fattening themselves up at the expense of others. They are the ones who go hungry. The ones who are mocking and proud, the ones who are full of themselves, end up empty and down in the dust. And those who are squashed and trodden down in the ashes get lifted up to the heights. That's what Hannah's experienced. So she starts the story by saying, my heart rejoices, my mouth boasts because of what God has done for me. He's listened to my prayer. He's raised me up. When I was weak, he made me strong. When I was empty, he made me full. When I had no hope, he gave me a future. Starts with that. And then she starts preaching to others and telling them, look, God is going to pull you down. If you're high up and using that authority against others, using it for your own benefit, well, look, the, the earth is on his foundations. He's the one who set it up, and he's a God of justice. He's a God who does what's right. He's a God who, who makes sure everyone has enough. And so if you're taking too much, you better watch out. There'll be a day when he pulls you down. And if you've got nothing, well, turn to him, and he'll lift you up. He raises from the dust the poor and lifts the needy from the ashes. He set, sets them with princes and has them inherit a seat of honour. In God's kingdom, in God's economy, in the way things work with him, there's nobody who's higher than anybody else. Even God himself stoops down to serve and give and pour out his life to wash feet. That's the kind of king that God is. He's the one who judges the earth, and so you know he's going to do it well. He's the one who rules, and you know he's going to do it fairly. He's the one that we're looking forward to. It's his rule that we want. But then all of a sudden, a king pops up, and Hannah says, we're looking forward to actually a person who's going to be here, who's going to rule with righteousness and justice. And that's the story of one Samuel. Samuel becomes this prophet, this leader of the nation, who eventually raises up Saul as a king. And then eventually when Saul turns his back on God, Samuel raises up at God's direction, David, this man after God's own heart. But a lot of the book of one Samuel, actually into two Samuel, the sequel, is all about waiting, about waiting for this king. Here's Hannah speaking, singing years and years and years and years and years and years and years before that king finally comes, the king who'd bring righteousness and goodness to flow through the land, from the Jordan to the sea, from north to south. David would eventually rise up, but it would take a long time, a lot of waiting, a lot of running around in the wilderness, being chased by the evil King Saul, a lot of making mistakes and doing things that he shouldn't have been doing, a lot of running away from your enemies, a lot of praying, a lot of heartache, a lot of real tragedy, waiting and waiting and waiting for the king who'd in the end be quite an unexpected king. We're waiting and watching, but in the end it turns out that he's, he's not very impressive. 
Like Saul was tall, dark and handsome and obviously a good choice for a king, David's not a good choice for a king. He's the youngest of his brothers. He's out in the fields with the sheep when Samuel comes to find him. He turns up to fight Goliath and he's small and runty and the armour doesn't fit him very well and he wants to go out and fight with a stick and some stones. He's not an impressive guy. He has older brothers who would surely do a better job than him. He's an unexpected king. But we're waiting for him nonetheless. And he's the one that God chooses. He's the one that God lifts up. He's the one who's after God's own heart. And David does rule eventually when he becomes the king. He rules for a good long time and pretty well. There's some pretty dark twists and turns. If you know the story of David and Bathsheba, David gets it really wrong, does some disastrously, horrifically abusive things in that story. But when all is said and done, God still works through him and brings a kingdom of peace, a kingdom where at least it was better than it was before when there was no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. But then David has an idea, has a dream, decides that he's going to build a temple for God. God's ark, God's presence had kind of been in a a tent traveling around from place to place all until this time. And then David decides he's going to build a house for God. And in a a prophecy, um, David is told by God, actually, no, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to build not a literal house like a, um, a, a palace, but I'm going to build your family line. God says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, When your days are over, David, and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I'll establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be his father, and he shall be my son. You hear that? I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David looks forward to, and the whole of the Old Testament story looks forward to somebody who's going to be on David's throne who's going to rule with righteousness and justice and do what's right and good forever. But the question is, who is it going to be? Is it going to be a son of David and the son of the son of David and the family line's going to kind of carry on? It'll be David's family ruling. And it it is like that for a bit, but then that goes wrong as well. Or is it going to be not just an endless line of rulers in David's um, family, or is it going to be one person who's going to rule forever? And that's actually what it ends up being. Isaiah chapter 9, we read about this king who's going to come. These are famous words that we often recite or sing at Christmas time. Nevertheless, there'll be no more gloom for those who are in distress. This is Isaiah 9. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the future, he'll honour Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of shadow, the shadow of death, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there'll be no end, and he'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Did you hear that? This king, this son, this boy will reign on David's throne, establishing it, upholding with righteousness and justice from the time that he's born and forever. It isn't just going to be an endless succession of people in David's family. It's going to be one, one boy who will come. God will be his father and he'll be God's son. 
and he'll reign on David's throne forever. And so that's the prophecy from Isaiah onwards. We're always looking forward to this son of David who's going to come, who's going to be the king, who's going to put everything right, who's going to judge the world and do it in a way where we would all agree and say, yeah, that's good. That's right. They do deserve justice. You should wipe away that evil. You should lift up those who are crushed. We'll look at his judgments, his counsel, and say, yeah, that's wonderful. We'll look at his works and say, that's mighty God in action. We'll look at how he loves us and say, wow, he's our father forever, everlasting father. We'll look at his kingdom and say, peace. That's where I want to live, at rest, at peace, forever. That's who this king is going to be. That's David's true son. And so we're not just waiting for King David, like Hannah was, but we're waiting for King David's son. We're waiting for somebody to come and take his throne and dwell on it forever. Somebody who will bring peace that never ends. Somebody who will bring life because they'll never die. Somebody who will even defeat death itself. It starts to look like we're waiting for God himself to step onto the field of human history. And so we're waiting, aren't we? Waiting for a king. Waiting for somebody. Not Owen Glyndor, not Mufasa. Certainly not Charles III. We're waiting for somebody to take the throne of history and do good forever. To make everything sad come untrue and put everything right forever. We're waiting for the king. And then he's born. On Christmas Day, a week from today, we'll remember the day that dawn broke on the horizon of history. We'll remember the day that shepherds came and bowed before him, that wise, wealthy men from the east came and bowed before this little toddler, where this mother gave birth to somebody she couldn't quite get her head around how big or wonderful or majestic he was, where as he grew, he knew things and did things that nobody else could do, that he showed himself to be king, not just over people, not just able to influence them and get them to follow him, but even over the elements of the world themselves, over water and wind as he calms the storm, over evil and darkness as he throws out demons, in fact, as they run away before he even asks them to go sometimes, over sickness and suffering as he comes and puts people's brain chemistry and body chemistry back together with a word, with a click of his fingers, with a touch of his hand. He is king over not just people, over not, in fact, not really over a land or a place or his kingdom just comes from somewhere else. It's something we've never quite seen before. It's as if the kingdom of heaven has touched earth, as if God himself has touched down in history, as if immortality has broken into this mortal coil and changed things forever. And then they arrest him. This king who's born, who's grown, who says things and does things that nobody else could ever do, who people start to think, is this the son of David? Go and look at Matthew's gospel, chapter 12. People see him healing and speaking and teaching and they start to ask themselves, is this the son of David, the one Isaiah was looking forward to? And then Jesus gets arrested, dragged before Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the representative of the king, the emperor, the great Roman emperor. And he starts asking him questions. John chapter 18, you might want to look this up. Let's read it together. John chapter 18, Pilate drags Jesus in for questioning and summons him, verse 33, John chapter 18, and says, are you the king of the Jews? 
Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. It's not of this world. You see, Jesus is saying he is a king, but not a king like Caesar, not a king like Nebuchadnezzar, not a king like Charles, not a king like Owen Glyndor, who's bound by time or by this mortal life, who's bound by death or sickness or storms. A kingdom that's completely unbound, a completely different kind of place where people don't fight with swords to make it happen, but where people fight with love and with truth. And let's carry on. Verse 37. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this I came into the world. Where did he come from? We don't talk about that, about normal babies like that. He came into the world from somewhere else to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. It's a little invitation to Pilate. Pilate, I'm the king of truth. Jesus has said not long before this that he is the truth, the way, the life. That you can't come to God the Father, you can't join in with heaven's kingdom without coming through Jesus. He's giving Pilate a little invitation. I'm a king like one you've never, never bowed before, before. A king you've never heard of before. Come on, Pilate. Do you want to be on the side of truth? Well, you need to come and meet me. I'm the king of truth, the king from another world, the king who's come to turn this world upside down. I don't need swords to do that. I don't need a great following of people to do that. Jesus is about to do something very lonely to establish his kingdom. But Pilate brushes off that invitation. Verse 38, what is truth? Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release this king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in the rebellion. That's another story. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, hail, king of the Jews, and they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. He's done nothing wrong. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said, Here is the man. Behold the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! And not long after this, they did crucify him. The king of glory. The one who God had sent into the world. The one that Hannah saw. You know that last word of her prophecy? Where God would give strength to his king, to his anointed that's the word Messiah. That's the word for the promised king who would come. Not David, not Solomon, but David's great son, the Lord Jesus, who would live forever, who'd be the king of peace, who'd put everything right again. This is the one who Pilate had before him. He really is the king. Did you feel his majesty through that story? As Pilate, the representative of the great emperor of Rome, is questioning this poor peasant guy from Galilee. He's sitting there in chains, questioned by Pilate, but who's in control of that situation? Jesus is. You can feel the majesty, the regal 
kingly glory just pouring off the page. Jesus is in full control of this whole situation when he's the one who's the prisoner. And then he willingly goes and lets them crucify him. He could have called down legions of angels. He could have got out of that situation however he wanted. But he didn't. He decided to stay and let them crucify him because that was the plan all along. Do you see how Jesus is the unexpected king? The one who does things in a way you would never have seen because his kingdom is not of this world. He doesn't need soldiers and swords. All he needs, all he needs is to trust his father and go to the cross and die. Be raised again in the power of the spirit and ride off into the sunset with his people. You see, this is a king from a whole other world. This is a king who brings heaven to earth and who turns this mortal coil upside down, who turns our expectations upside down, who turns, turns good and evil upside down, who turns our hopes and dreams upside down, who turns everything upside down and inside out, because who would have ever seen this coming? Jesus as the one who would rule the world from the cross. Jesus, the one who would give his life to give us life. Jesus, the one who would be laid in the dust so that we who are down in the dust could be raised to the heavens. Jesus, the one who was full and had everything, angels worship and all he could imagine in the presence of the Father in heaven, who gives it all up to come down and raise hungry, empty, spiritually barren people like us up into heaven to be part of the fellowship of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. You see, he's the unexpected king. You would never have imagined he could do this or would do this, that he would die for people like you and me. But he does. And he did. And he really is the king. You see, three days later, after this story, when they crucified him, they thought they were in control, but really Jesus was. And three days later, he took his body up again. The spirit raised him from the grave again, from that ash heap of the grave, broke out of the tomb. <coughs> and now Jesus is raised up as Lord and Messiah, as the anointed promised king who put everything together again. He's seated at God's right hand today. One day he's gonna rule everything. One day all of his enemies are gonna be put under his feet. And so maybe we've got a question ringing in our minds. If Jesus really is the king, if he's been raised, if he is the king who can put all things right again, if he's the king who can even deal with death and promise life to all who follow him, why hasn't he done it yet? Why is the world such a mess? Why is it so dark out there? Why do we switch on our TVs and see four little boys drowned in a frozen lake just before Christmas time? Why do we have to look around the world and see so much tragedy in Ukraine and in all the other places that don't even make it onto the news? In our own lives, uh, the stresses and struggles and the memories that Christmas time brings up where perhaps it's happy for some people, but for many, this is a really difficult time of year. Why do we live in a world that's so dark and shadowy if Jesus, this gloriously bright king, has come to turn it all the right way up again? Why is the world like this if Jesus is really on the throne? That's the big question, isn't it? It's the question of Advent. Why is there suffering if, as you say, you Christians, there really is a loving God? Well, that's a really big question and a good and honest question to ask. One way of dealing with it is to say, well, if that's proof that there isn't a God, then how do you deal with that question? 
If you're an atheist listening to this today, or if you're somebody who doubts the existence of God because of the presence of suffering, well, how do you deal with that question? Where does suffering come from? Or an even more interesting question, where does our hope in suffering come from? Where does our sense that it's not right, that it shouldn't be, when suffering comes? Where does that come from? Because if suffering is all there's ever been, if we come from Darwin's laws of survival of the fittest, then suffering has got us to where we are today. You're a product of suffering, and so to be honest, you should just get used to it. There's no moral value in it. It's not right or wrong. It's just how it is. It's just how you got here. In fact, it's probably quite a good thing because it's developed the human race to whatever it is now. If that's, if this is all there is, if there is no God outside of this material frame, then there is no hope in suffering. In fact, suffering isn't even wrong or strange or out of place. It just is what the world is like. So get used to it. There's no hope in it. There's not even any wrong or injustice in it. But we know that's not true, don't we? We know that suffering shouldn't be here. We know it's an alien and a weird thing. We long for the day when a king would come, when the king would return and put it all right again. When this, the son of the king would rise up and sweep Scar away and bring sunshine and warmth and water again to this parched world. We know that's not true. We know that there is hope. We know that suffering isn't how it's meant to be. We just know that deep, deep down. So why hasn't he come and fixed it yet? Well, I think the answer is that if he were to wipe evil and suffering away from the world right now today, they would have to start with wiping me away and you. That if, if evil and darkness and suffering were to go, well, that means you have to get rid of the source of evil and darkness and suffering. And I know that at least part of the source of part of that suffering is in my heart. A famous Russian writer said that the line dividing good and evil isn't between one country and another, that you know they're good and we're evil, or we're good and they're evil, or one person and another, that they're bad and I'm good. But no, the line dividing good and evil runs through every human heart. So if God is going to do something finally and fully to get rid of suffering and darkness and evil and death, he has to get rid of me. He has to sweep me away from the earth and you as well. Why hasn't he done anything about it just yet? Why hasn't he come back with the clouds to finish evil once and for all? Because he's being patient. Because he's slowly working through evil bit by bit. Slowly working through his church, which, which is still often full of darkness, bit by bit. Still working in yours and my heart, being extraordinarily patient with us. Waiting for us, giving time for us to turn to him. To recognise that he's the son of David and to come and be a part of his kingdom. He's being patient with us. It's not that he's not there. It's not that he doesn't care. It's not that he's not powerful enough to care. It's that he's being patient with us and wanting us to turn to him. Let me finish with this story from Luke's gospel. This is Luke chapter 18 and verse 35. Jesus walks past a man who's born blind and the man screams out and cries out, hears that he's there and says to him these amazing words. Luke chapter 18 verse 35 this man cries out and says Jesus son of David have mercy on me that's really what I want to finish today look all of us want to be our own kings that's if we're honest what we want isn't it we don't want Jesus to be our king we want to be our own kings we want to be our own rulers we want to fix the world in our own way in our own time but how good a job have we done of that not a particularly good job. 
not a particularly good job if you're anything like me. So what we need is to cry out to him as the king, to recognize him for who he really is, the son of David, the one who is promised, the one who'd bring peace, the one whose counsel is wonderful, the one who is mighty God, our hero, the one who's our caring, loving father who provides and gives everything we need. We need to throw ourselves to him, look out and fix our eyes on him. Call to him today and say, Jesus, you're the son of David, you're the king. You're the one who, who holds the world in your hands. You're the one who's been patient with me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Make me part of your kingdom. Make me part of the solution. I want to be and walk with you. Let's pray. Lord God, that is our prayer today. We know that you're the king. We know that you're the one who has promised. We know that you're the one who one day will fix the world. We thank you that you're being patient with us. And we ask that you would help us. We ask that you would keep on serving us, Lord, and give us the strength to serve you. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us for how we've walked away from you and tried to be our own kings and tried to fix the world according to our own solutions. Lord, we've made a real mess. Would you forgive us? Would you have mercy on us? Would you bring us into your kingdom and help us know what we should do to bring your light into this dark world? Amen.